A big hello to all of our listeners and you're very welcome along to the Global Insights Podcast. My name is Laura Woods. Today we are honoured to have Nick Weber joining us. Nick is a luminary in critical infrastructure security with a wealth of experience in national infrastructure protection, emergency preparedness and high-level government security. He's the managing partner at Archer International, where his expertise is shaping the future of infrastructure resilience. Nick's leadership journey commenced in the military, serving as a cavalry officer in the Army National Guard, and it was here that his leadership skills were first sharpened, later translating into a significant role at the Department of Homeland Security. His transition from military to federal service is a testament to his adaptable leadership and deep commitment to national safety. In the private sector this past decade, Nick has been a pioneer, overseeing Archer International, which offers services that are critical to the US's security framework. He tackles the intricate challenges posed by the global and interdependent nature of our critical infrastructures, ensuring that they are fortified against potential threats. Nick, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us today. What a career you've had. How are you? I'm doing great, uh, especially after an intro like that. So thank you. Can I take it that intro every time I deal with my children? That would be great. <laughs> I'm chatting to you here in Dublin. Where exactly are you? I'm in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. So if you're unfamiliar with Idaho, it's the little narrow piece at the very top near Canada. So if things go terribly south, I'll just go be Canadian. <laughs> it won't happen. I was reading all of the notes in the lead up to today's chat and With an awful lot of our guests on the podcast, their love and their ambition and desire to protect people started at an early age. And since you started out in the military, became a cavalry officer in the Army National Guard, I was wondering, was this an ambition you always harboured as a little boy as well? I'm not sure if it was harboured or kind of thrust upon me. I grew up in a, a large family. All my cousins live very close together half Irish, half Italian, all Catholic. So we were kind of all banded together, whether we liked it or not. I was the, the third oldest and it was really like pinned into all of us that we'd look out for each other. Um, and that's something that I'm really, I love seeing it in my own children now, even though I haven't been quite as a, over the top with that. I feel as maybe my, my grandfather and grandmother and aunts and uncles and mom parents were, but, but no, that, that is something that I, I look back and every job I've had that I've enjoyed and I've truly loved, that's been a key piece of it. Tell us about that time in your life um, as a member of the Army National Guard. Do you look back on that time with affection? Was it a a difficult time? Was it challenging for you? Um, Yes, all of the above. But that's what I think made it something that was so formative and so helpful for me and and why I do appreciate it so much, because it was challenging. I think that the easy things usually aren't worth it and the things that are worth it aren't easy. I honestly, there are times I look back on particularly when I was a platoon leader and with soldiers day in, day out. Um, in Iraq, I miss it um, because there's this, there's a simplicity and also a knowing that you're all working together. You know what's asked, what you, what's required of you. There's a there's a, a simplicity in the complete chaos that, that I, I certainly miss that to a degree. The biggest thing I miss are, are, is the team I was with, and I think that's one of those things when you go through certain you call them significant emotional events. It, it really bonds in a way that you don't see anywhere else. So I, I certainly miss that. And I'm extremely grateful for the opportunities it gave me, not necessarily in the being a military officer set me up for this job or that job, but the skill sets. Some of the things that I was put into that I, as I went into the the ROTC training program as a 19-year-old, never imagined I would ever be able to handle. There's one of them that actually stands out very clearly. It's one of my mentors yelling at me under a simulated um, artillery attack, do something, do anything. And all of a sudden it's like, it clicked. Like, okay, here's what we're going to do. and took off. 
it, it makes a lot of things really simple after that. Once you can go through something super complex and challenging and you know you made it through, that's valuable in a way that I don't know that you can really replicate that ability to believe in yourself. It's so interesting hearing you speak about that and the close bond that you have with your colleagues um, from that time. You're only 19. You were so young to be thrust into a very strict regime, really, and then to go abroad. You mentioned there you're in Iraq. And also as a platoon leader, do you think that's where you first started to hone your leadership skills? Because it really was a matter of life and death for you and your colleagues. I think that the leadership piece I got a taste for it before that. I used to do wildland firefighting for the Forest Service and did some of that even before when I was working my way through university and really enjoyed the leadership piece, not because I wanted to be in charge, which is what 18-year-old me said, I want to be in charge. 19, 20, 21-year-old me went, I really enjoy being able to help other people get the most out of themselves because somebody else had done that for me. So that was a piece that when I found that in the military, which is not what I grew up expecting from the military, I was used to, you go do what you're told to do and you're, you're, you're a widget. You do what widgets do, at least as an officer and a non-commissioned officer and a leader in the military, which pretty quickly everybody gets that opportunity. Your job isn't to go be a widget. It's to make everybody else on your team better. And what that looks like is it really depends on the individual. But It sounds like you grew up a lot in the military. I mean, you were still a young guy in your early 20s. So to have that mature approach to your team, um, but to life in general, to know that, you know, getting the best out of other people is, is going to be the ultimate achievement for yourself. That's quite something. Well, I think that the two biggest compliments I got at that point were people being shocked when we were deployed in Iraq and I, I turned 24 there and they said, you're only 24? And then the next one being, well, how long did you serve before you became an officer? And the answer unequivocally was shock when I said zero. I came in as an officer, but I worked in other careers where I had to work up. I had to pay my dues. Again, I came up in a family that was blue collar. You had to do hard work. You can't be afraid of it. So those are kind of the, the traits that really stuck with me was when you've been in those positions where somebody else is completely in control of what and how you do your work, it makes you appreciate the ability to, to see that in others. And yet there are those that would say leaders are born and not made. It's just intrinsically part of you and who you are. You don't agree? I don't think it is. I think, I think it's both. <laughs> Could we chat about your move from the military? to the Department of Homeland Security. So how long were you in the military for and why did you make the decision, first of all, to leave since you since you got so much from the military? Why did you decide to leave? And then the move to the Department of Homeland Security, that was a very ambitious move in itself. You would have still been young. Yeah. Um, so with the military, I was in the National Guard and Reserve, which I remember the, the, um, the pitch when I was growing up was one weekend a month, two weeks a year. That may have been true before September 10th, 2001. <laughs> Absolutely not after. I know when I had my 10 years, I looked back and I had over five years of that on active federal service. So there was already kind of a built-in ability to to flex and go from being full-time military to part-time. So within that, I, f I actually was assigned to a mission supporting Homeland Security, I think when I had been in the military for about seven years, six, seven years. And it was one that was, I actually was hesitant to accept it. Didn't really have as much of a choice like I think I did, but... Why were you hesitant? Um, because my unit was getting ready to deploy again. And actually, it was our brigade commander who had been my battalion commander who looked at me and said, I really don't need you for this deployment. I need you to go do this other mission that's brand new because I've seen what you do. He goes, and first of all, with this deployment where we're not doing any of the fun, cool guy stuff, you're going to be a problem for me. You're going to be my problem child because you don't sit still. But I had this other mission where I need somebody who's going to not sit still. 
So you're not going to go with everybody you've been training with. You're going to go do this instead. Um, so that was kind of a, it was a really hard decision. I look back and I just kick myself. I, I think I'm an idiot for even agonizing over it because the opportunity that was was immense. Um, again, I think I was 28, 29 at the time. And yet I can totally understand why you wanted to stay with your platoon. Yeah, that, that brotherhood and that bond. And I think that was also a piece that he probably looked at and went, it's time for you to start moving beyond that. Don't let this be who you are um, for the rest of your life. So I think that was a, a piece that I look at that Colonel Caprol and, and what he looked at there as well. So while you were in the Department of Homeland Security, were you assigned to, you know, an office job? Were you chained to a desk or were you out in the field? So the first three years, um, it was a combination of military and DHS Homeland Security, and I was in the field all the time. I actually, technically, we had a desk. Uh, I had a three-person team. Um, we had two desks that we rotated through because we were essentially every other week, we were somewhere in the United States looking at critical infrastructure, doing these vulnerability assessments. And our job was essentially look at it and say, all right, you three are experts in your particular fields. Figure out how you would break this and then tell us so we can go back and fix that. And we would do two sites a week. And that was kind of crazy because some of those we might be looking at an oil refinery one day and then a large hotel the next day. But our team, we got kind of picked into being, we focused on the Western U.S. So we were, unfortunately, we had to go spend three weeks in Hawaii one, one November. That was rough. <laughs> I'm sure it was. <laughs> it was terrible. It was horrible. But we got to look at all the energy in Hawaii, how it comes in from the major tankers down to individual gas pumps. And that was really unique to see beginning to end how that was. So then that kind of turned into us becoming the systems groups where we would look at an entire city's water system. Um, we also, I'm not sure how, there's, a, there's accusations of bribery and I did not bribe anyone, but we were the team, one of the two teams that was picked to do Super Bowl prep every year. We never got to come back for the game, but we got to go there six months before and say, hey, you need to go fix all these things. And we kept bringing up like, hey, we need to come back and make sure like what we're saying makes sense. You got to bring us back for the game. And they would laugh at us and send us off to Alaska in the winter. So <laughs> it certainly sounds like a very varied job. Is this where your interest in uh, security surrounding infrastructure was peaked or where it began? Because you've you know ultimately made a full career out of infrastructure and security. And we'll get to Archer International in a, mi in a minute. But was this an area that you'd previously considered as somewhere, you know, uh, an area you'd like to focus on? No, I'd always been interested in how things work together and kind of deconstructing how the things we see, how they get to what we see in the end. Um, but the idea of securing that hadn't even crossed my mind until I, I got into this role. Um, but then to find out that that combination of the security from the military, a little bit of that wildland firefighting, even for the natural disaster, natural hazard side, and that desire to understand how things work. Um, really all came together and said, oh, I, I really enjoy this. This is something that I would do. I'm going to tell anyone this. I would probably do this just in my spare time for fun because it's it's enjoyable to me to figure all these things out. And it really hit all those pieces from protecting people to understanding a system and, and figuring things out. And that no, no two problems, even the same place two days, aren't the same. That's one of the biggest things I go back to. I think the first aptitude test I remember being given in, in grade school was, would you be comfortable doing the same thing every day? And it's like, absolutely not, never, ever. And that's one of the things that has never changed for me in the, the 40 years since. You made the move from the Department of Homeland Security into the private sector, and you've been in the private sector for 12 years now. So can you tell us a little bit about Archer International and the work that you do there, Nick? Um, so I'll start with Archer, and we're a, a smaller security firm. 
really focused on cyber. I was the first full-time physical security person that came in, although I know enough about cyber um, to be able to swim in those waters. Usually I know when to say, hey, come help. But it started with um, the, the four founding partners had worked together at a utility in the early 2000s. And then they, three of them had gone on to be security compliance auditors and realized that there was a space that wasn't being met for a combination of reasons. Some of it is the ability to, to get the right talent. One of the things I like to say is that a lot of times I need six skill sets, but I only have enough hours for one person. And those skill sets rarely live in that one person. So I need to figure out how to scale that and bring that in. It makes sense for my CFO. Um, they saw the similar pieces. They also saw that there was a huge talent shortage, particularly in cybersecurity, and it's still there and it's going to be there for a long time. So how do we help the most most utilities and get out from under either the requirements of being in a compliance regime or a company that their, their executives still can't wrap their arms around it? It's, sometimes it's easier to help solve those problems from outside the organization. So that's where they started and really dove into the electric um, utilities. And there were the compliance requirements that at the time were still fairly new. So they said, we're going to be, we have former auditors. We've all sat in the seat. We've done the job. This is why you should hire us. So we've really carried that forward because we've expanded. Um, two of those partners have, have retired and moved on. Four new of us have come in. But we look at our entire partner group. Everyone has been a security auditor and worked at a utility or worked in the job. Um, and most of us have been that chief security officer, head of security. The, the person who, when the phone calls it, it comes through at three in the morning, there's nobody else to call. You are the person to make that decision. So that's a piece that really is is helpful to have the skill set. And I think we were, we talked about before, but a lot of times our clients will come to us with, hey, this is a crisis. The world's on fire for us. This is Tuesday because we helped put this fire out last week at this other place. So that's a lot of the value I think that we can bring is just taking that skill set and helping the people who are on the ground sometimes realize they have the skills all along. They just need to help get out of the starting blocks. Um, sometimes it's for a very specialized need that it doesn't make sense to to have a full-time employee work. So that's kind of where we started Archer. We've now expanded into more critical infrastructure, but that's really where we stick to is, is critical infrastructure. We've, we've looked at other companies that have tried to go too broad too fast. And realize you end up diluting the product and you end up not really helping as much as you want to because you start having to chase other metrics. Um, so for us, we, we kind of we do keep it small on purpose and really focused in on that, that critical infrastructure. And Nick, can I ask you for our listeners out there, probably have the same question I do. I mean, can you give us an example, I, I guess, of the many infrastructures that would be deemed to be critical and vulnerable to attack also? So that one depends on what country you're in, how they rack and stack and, and silo everything out. But it generally, it's it's the pieces that, that you don't realize you use every day. Uh, the most obvious one we usually lead off with is energy. That's oil, natural gas, electricity, uh, followed closely by water, your communications. Uh, banking and finance is another one. Can you imagine what it would be like if you went to, to the bank or the ATM and it was unavailable with no answer for when it's coming back and no ability to get our money now because our economy is, is digital. Those are the pieces we look at. Transportation, that's when we, you routinely, in the States at least, we hear about the crumbling infrastructure because so much of our infrastructure was built in that post-World War II era, and it's been maintained to varying degrees since then. So those are some of the pieces we look at, and it's all all connected. That's the other fun part. Yes, and we'll get to that connection, and I guess that is such a vital part of the service that you offer as well. Do you think that there's an awareness on the part of the public just how important it is 
for our infrastructures not only to be secure, but to be well insured, to be well maintained? Or is it very much a sector that flies under the radar a little bit? It certainly falls under the radar with two caveats. One being, when, at least in the States, when there's an election, that becomes a really big issue for about 15 minutes. Uh, and the next one is when it's not working, when there's a natural disaster or there is some sort of attack. And I would say the third one, and probably one of the more, the, the next levels when nation states get involved. And I look at the, the bridge between the Russian mainland and Crimea. When that was bombed, that ended Russia's ability to maneuver through an entire section of their theater of operations. One bridge. So seismic, a seismic action, yeah. Well, that one was actually kayak bombs, but it was a, a military action. But that's one of the things we look at also. We don't talk about it, but you look at the military actions. Infrastructure is usually one of the first things that gets attacked, whether that was that's Russia attacking Ukraine's grid, cyber attacks, going back to Desert Storm. Some of the first attacks in there were on the infrastructure to minimize the ability to, to communicate. Uh, even in Bosnia, I didn't realize this until I was working in Homeland Security. They actually used mylar chaff to take their, their grid offline. So the same, the aluminum-looking balloons you'd get for your birthday to put those into giant strands, drop them on the uh, the substation so the substation would turn itself off because it shorts out. You mentioned Desert Storm there in Bosnia. So we're talking about the early 90s. You worked in Homeland Security. What What was the reaction then was it a more reactive as opposed to proactive measures being taken because we just didn't have, I guess, the facilities or? I think when you look at that, for the military context, infrastructure is not a surprise. And I think you even take that back to some of the, the earliest conflicts in the Middle Ages and before. It's around water or the ability to move. And siege is really an infrastructure attack. So it's not necessarily new from that perspective. The thought that it would be used as a, a terrorist vector that we started to see into the 2000s um, to try to form, try to shape policy or drive changes through violence. That was, that was the big change. That's where the Department of Homeland Security came from. Um, obviously, it came out of 9-11, um, September 11th attacks. But frankly, we were, we were late. We should have been paying attention. Frankly, we should have been paying attention to uh, our, our friends over in the UK and, and Ireland. Not new there. And really, if you go back through history, their infrastructure attacks probably back to the first few people. Nick, would you be able to give us some specific examples of the infrastructure attack? You mentioned there, obviously, 9-11. But, for example, the power outage in, I think it was New York City 25 years ago, and the sort of far-reaching effects that one specific incident can have. Yeah, one of the reasons in North America we have um, reliability standards, and it's a combination of the planning, engineering, maintenance, and security. They all come together because any one of those can be a problem. Uh, and that there was the New York blackout, I believe in 2003, that was a combination of, if you lined up, it's like taking five or six pieces of Swiss cheese. And there actually was the one hole that went through just a, a bad luck event. But what it did was there was not proper communication around what was available as far as ability to backfill loss of power for a couple of different components. Some things were offline that other people didn't realize were offline. And then I believe it was a tree branch hit a power line that was overloaded that they didn't realize had been overloaded, which then caused the system to turn off. So bulk of the, the large electrical systems around the world are built to turn themselves off as a safety measure. They get out of certain parameters, they turn off. So this happened and it created a domino effect. And I've seen like satellite imagery. It looks like a pinwheel, actually, of this happening kind of around the Great Lakes. Started, I believe, Cleveland area, went to the west around the Great Lakes, up through Canada and down through New York. And power was out in, I believe it was August of, of uh, 2003. 
for three or four days. And this is some of the, the biggest cities in both Canada and the United States, completely in the dark. And it t- takes a while to put, turn that back on. You don't just go back and turn a switch on. It all has to come back kind of balanced. So what that, that created a lot of issues. There were obviously deaths related to that. When you, you Hospitals don't have necessarily the, the backup power to be able to function. You start losing communications because at that point, we didn't weren't as reliable on cellular reliant on cellular communications, but most cellular communications can last for up to about three days without their commercial power feed. You start to see all these things that we take for granted because it's there every day. You go through that outage, day, usually day one, day two, people are fine. It's day three, four, five, that it starts to get really, really challenging and it becomes a life or death situation depending on time of year. We actually had some in, in my area two weeks ago where there were actually people were having to leave their homes because they couldn't heat their homes anymore because we were having extreme cold temperatures and then ice storm on top of it. So they lost the ability to heat. So it becomes a much more complex problem very quickly. But that one was, wasn't even an attack, but it kind of opened the eyes to, if this can happen on accident, it can certainly happen on purpose. So that followed with then the security components. It started with cybersecurity and we've seen more recently that physical attacks can have similar outcomes. And would one of those attacks then include the attack in the San Francisco Bay Area? That was, think, about 10 years ago, was it? Yeah, we had the, the Metcalf substation attack just south of San Jose. And that one, that one honestly still makes me a little very nervous with the sophistication we saw. Usually when we see people attacking infrastructure, at least in the States, I immediately go to somebody who's watched a few too many Tom Clancy movies and fancies themselves the next uh, John Wick. And they really aren't. They look a lot more like me than they're just... You look like John Wick for anyone who's wondering. <laughs> well, thank you, but I'm not sure about that. But but this one, actually, they, they'd done the research or they had the inside knowledge to know where the communications into that substation were. So were you surprised by the level of professionalism then? It's something you hadn't seen before. The, yeah, the professionalism, the coordination, uh, the fact they realized that the communication path would be critical to that response and recovery in, interrupted that by breaking into a communication vault. And then beyond that, they knew to cut that communication right at the vault wall so that they couldn't do a quick splice. Um, Even I know how to quickly splice wire, but if it's already inside that concrete and there's not anything to pull on, now that's a whole different issue because you've got to get the concrete out. It's, it goes from a five or 10 minute fix to probably a day. So what did the security sector learn from these um, and what changes have they prompted? For the, the, the Metcalf one in particular, I'd say that going back to the New York one, the first one was that we, we really are dependent on this and we have to be better about managing our reliability, whether that's maintenance, planning, or security. Any of those pieces, we've got to be on top of all of them. The, the Metcalf one was realization that most of our infrastructure is dispersed. And it doesn't matter. It's not just a U.S.-centric problem. It's everywhere. If you drive through Europe, you'll see substations just out in the middle of someone's farm. That's the way it's built because um, it has to go everywhere. You'll see a bridge across the river. You, you, you'll see a bunch of them in the middle of Paris. You'll also see some out in the countryside. They're everywhere. So it's almost impossible to protect because it's literally everywhere. Are you saying, Nick, that they, all these areas that you just mentioned, are they, are they super vulnerable? Are we not paying enough attention to them? They're vulnerable, but they're also resilient because we've built in the redundancies for the most part. So that's a piece that, that gets overlooked as we focus in on super vulnerable because it's sitting out there all alone in 365 days a year. What we don't talk about as much is that, generally speaking, that one piece isn't going to create the societal collapse. I have yet to see any single single point of failure that would be beyond a, a local area 
challenge. There are some when you get into, when you get to cities that are built on peninsulas or lots of rivers, that can get really challenging because you're geographically constrained. But generally speaking, I've seen a couple that had me really going, yeah, this is a bad day for everyone in this area, but nothing that would necessarily cripple a nation or even a large part of a nation because we built it with the idea that our engineers build it with a certain failure acceptance. That we know that sometimes that's not going to be available. That's just the nature of how everything works. But we also have to understand what happens when you get two at once. And we saw that about a year ago in North Carolina. There were attacks in the Moore County area that I know that the media initially came out and said the, the motive for it was that a group was trying to turn off power to a town that was hosting a drag show as a political uh, maneuver. Then they walked that back and then it's starting to look a lot more like that was actually the first report was the right report. That was the motivation. But this group identified where power came into the city and attacked two of the substations there. And I've heard rumors, I don't know for sure, but I've heard they were looking at two more as well and just didn't didn't get there. But the power company, I, I know how they handled that because they'd looked at this before they'd done exercises. They proactively just turned the power off so the damage would be minimized. So it's easier to bring it back. Interesting that you mentioned that, actually, because my next question was going to be how we can plan for a potential attack. So how do you do that? So that one actually came out of that. It's it's all connected. I see the theme here. But that, that Metcalf attack in the San Francisco Bay Area created a standard requirement for physically protecting critical substations. Um, and what that looks like is do the vulnerability assessment, have a plan, repeat every couple of years. That utility, um, we'd done some work with them and said, all right, they said, what else can we do? It's like, okay, you have an exercise group. Let's start exercising these plans because a plan that's not exercised is a wish. So we had actually gone through and they, they'd started and we, we stepped in and helped them kind of as a, hey, we can do that too. But went through some of these physical attacks on their critical substations. And while these ones that were attacked weren't deemed the, the critical ones at the, the nation, national level, the lesson still carried through. So when we, we had gone through with their, their system operators, and I, I ended up being the, the facilitator between their security and system operators to say, how are we going to handle if somebody decides they want to plant bombs in one of our substations? And we went through, okay, this is how this unfolds. We start from, it's a sunny day, it's a sunny Tuesday, everything's normal to, we've got some suspicious activity here. Not a big deal. we got others over here. Okay, now we're paying a little more attention. And built that, that out from wonderful sunny day to your substation is being blown up. What are you doing? Similarly, we'd done, we actually were scheduled to do another one, uh, I think the week after that attack, that was a, a gunshot one. It was going to be our second one. It was going to facilitate how does this unfold and what do you see from just your system monitoring? What is your, what are your breakers starting to do? What are your, your transformers in your substation? What kind of alarms are you getting on that? We'd actually built that scenario out. But even in building that scenario out and thinking through what does this look like, those operators had in their mind, if I start to see if this, then this, and then if this and this and this, then it's probably this. They were able to see that they were being attacked without any no security controls. There were no cameras. There was no gunshot detection. But because they've been through those exercises enough, they understood what it happened. They also then understood that somebody shooting at electric infrastructure that is energized will cause it to fail spectacularly. Not quite a Michael Bay Hollywood explosion, but you'll get a lot of the, the arcs and sparks in the big the, the huge multi-million dollar damage that might take two year, two or three years to repair. If that electricity isn't running through it, it doesn't do that because the the energy it can't over, overpower, and that's where it really starts to, to tear itself apart. You have to replace oil. You have to mitigate some of the oil that leaked out under the ground. Um, you have to replace individual components. But now you're taking that back to 
I think one of those substations was fully operational in 72 hours. So you're going from two years to two, three days. And they were able to get power back, not fully reliable all the time, but they were able to say, hey, you, got, you get power for six hours and we've got to shift over here because we don't have the, the bandwidth yet to do everything. But kept it from being that prolonged four, five, six, seven plus day power outage. So we have global dependency, but of course, we also have vast interdependency of different infrastructure. So Nick, how challenging does that make your job? It's challenging, but also it's, I also find it fascinating because you start to realize how reliable we are on each other. That's why I remember when I was at at Homeland Security, when I was chained to the desk for a few years there at the end and and getting a request from a congressional representative, how do we turn power off to Canada? And I just, I actually put it down, went and grabbed a cup of coffee, came back, picked it up, laughed, went down to my boss said, how do I even answer something that's this, this insane? Um, Because the answer was, you don't. Um, We are completely interconnected. And furthermore, in that particular area where that congressman was from, their power comes from Canada because they generate more north of the border than we did south. There are ways to take those lines out. You're not going to like the outcome. You start to look, obviously, everybody's familiar with the the dependency on oil. I think that's driven global policy for my entire lifetime, and, and I think for most of us. There's a dependency there, whether it's in South America, who's producing more than they're consuming at one point, or the Middle East, or strangely, the United States for natural gas. There's that dependency. We are, everybody's familiar with dependency on parts of Africa or Asia for rare earths. I mean, we, all the things we need are not in any one nation. So there's that component. And then down the, you bring that down to the local piece. And I remember an exercise when I was at Homeland Security, where we realized that we needed communications to be able to safely restore power, but the communication sector needed power to be able to provide communications. It became this impossible chicken and egg scenario of, well, which do we get back? And what it ultimately turned into is a very slow recovery because we had to recover power in one area with the communications we had to be able to expand the communications, then expand the power. And it was what the exercise planners had hoped would be about a week in exercise time of recovery was closer to a year because there was that dependency. So many things we're so used to, oh, as long as I can charge my cell phone, I'm going to be able to communicate. But there's that that cell tower that's over on that hilltop or over in that neighbourhood, what's powering it? What's making it work? Yeah, it's such a complex issue. And I don't think the vast majority of us probably have that foresight to consider the bigger picture. We just live in the here and now. What affects me directly? Is my heating on? Is my phone working? We don't really grasp the ramifications and, and the ripple effect that could happen. So it's really quite complex. Could you tell us a little bit about your own podcast, Direct Connect, and all of the information that you share on there? Yeah, this is, we started Direct Connect a little over a year ago. Really, is it, it came out of one of our team members who does all of our advertising and video production, listening to two or three of us have a conversation. He's like, I should record that. We need to, we need to do something with that. And it really be, it started off, the first couple episodes, I find them hilarious because it's kind of really just a handful of us sitting around chopping it up. Really not a whole lot of, of professionalism or, or even direction on it. But we've, we've since realized that we have an ability to fill a knowledge gap, particularly on the, the NERC compliance space, because it is such a, a nuanced space. I think one of the, the more recent ones was there was a recent change to the standards that allows some of the sensitive information to be stored in cloud environments. Sounds very simple. Do you look into how does this actually occur and where are the pitfalls? Uh, they're everywhere. So we actually spent some time interviewing one of my other partners, actually two of my other partners on 
how would you actually implement this? It sounds all well and good when somebody sits in the ivory tower and says, sure, go, go forth and, and do. So we unpack a lot of those pieces, um, try to bring in guests. Really, we're looking at our audience are, generally speaking, it's energy, um, compliance, and security professionals. Some of the pieces we're going to start to look and get into are even the self-care side, because one of the pieces that in this industry, when you're the protector all the time, the protectors still need protected so they take care of themselves. That's another piece I want to start to move into this next year to have that, that direct connect be source for, for education across the board, whether it's security compliance or just taking care of yourself. Because if you have to take care of yourself, you're not taking care of your, your company and your, your stakeholders. Nick, one final question for you. As a protector, what are you most concerned about regarding security and infrastructure when you look ahead to the next five years? I'm going to say I think that the biggest one is... I'm going to come back to what I just hit on. It's it's running out of protectors because it is it's a high burnout spot. I was really fortunate. I met Lee Outen, who introduced me to you all, uh, and the Kindness Games. That was such an amazing um, phenomenon that he and Tim Wenzel and Kekishan and, and Kelsey created. Really looking out, saying, "Hey, we're in a a position where we're not supposed to show vulnerability. We're not supposed to worry about taking care of ourselves. We're always rough and hard. And we're going to do the right things, uh, and that that wears." And that was a piece that I think that even spun out of the wild leaders conversations with um, Dr. Rob McKenna and Dr. Halleck when they were at a conference, I know with my friend Ron Mormon and, and saying, man, there's a lot of people here that are great people, but you can just feel the burnout in here and finding out that in this uh, arena, you'll find a lot of people who are absolutely running beyond the, the limitations of humans. So I think that's a big piece that I'm really excited to be involved in. Again, thanks to, to Lee and Tim and, and all those great people. How do we? How are we taking care of our protectors? Because I think that's the big piece. Because I see younger generations looking at it going, "Ooh, I don't want to do that." So then, what happens when the talent's there, but there's not the willingness? Because we haven't done a good job of showing how do we take care of ourselves to make sure we're setting the right example and we're available. But you don't switch off either. We were chatting earlier on before we started recording. You mentioned you had a phone call at 3 a.m. from somebody needing an emergency solved. You can't live like that forever. So how do you switch off? For me, I'm, I'm fortunate that I've got uh, five partners that I love and they do great things. And we, we also are pretty good at looking out for each other. Like, hey, did you really need that 3 a.m. phone call? No. That's what voicemail is for. Um, and, and having that ability of, hey, I'm, I'm overwhelmed right now. I'm tapping out, bringing you in and vice versa. I think that's a big piece. Is, it's... Having your community, um, whatever that looks like, that's a big piece of, of making sure you have that. And then the trusted advisors actually had a conversation yesterday. I have my various advisors for health and mental and all those pieces, and I don't have them in my life to tell me what I want to hear. They tell me what I need to hear. So I think that's a, a key piece is, is having that advisor that is going to give you the things you don't want to hear, um, especially for protectors. And I, I find it kind of ironic because I have a very good friend that I was, I've been that for her since we were in college because she's a type A and she's going to do everything. Actually in Baghdad, I went and I didn't kidnap her. We just didn't go where I told her where we were going, where she thought we were going um, because she was working 20 hours a day. And some of her team was like, Hey, can you come do something with her? Really? She needed to switch off. Yeah. We went to the movies. Like, yeah, we're going to, there's a little movie theater over here. We're going to go to that. She, I have so much to do. I said, no, you're covered. So you need to surround yourself with good people. How are you going to attract the young blood? How are you going to bring all these graduates into this really interesting, very, very fast, quick evolving sector? How are you going to bring in the young blood to it? I think a lot of it is given the opportunity. That's one of the things I, I early on kind of fell into the traps. I'm right on the cusp of Gen X and millennial. Oh, the millennials are so lazy. It's like, no, they're not. They're no more lazy than we were slackers and dropouts before us. You put all those things on, but 
but really it's bring them in, ask them questions and listen. That's one of the things I've been so impressed with the generations behind me is like the things they see, even down to my, my 14 year old son, the way he sees things, it's like, man, I wish I would have seen things like that when I was your age. So I think part of it is putting down our own hubris and saying, okay, this has worked for me. Doesn't mean it's the best way. and doesn't mean it is the way it has to be. I think that's a key piece. That's what I've found, particularly working with the younger generations is they want to be involved. They want to do good things. They also want to be heard and validated. And those don't, those aren't exclusive components. You can be a great security uh, leader and still validate people and still listen and, and bring that in. I think, and again, I come back to, I'm going to come back to Lee and Tim on that because they are setting the bar on this is how you can be both type A John Wick and super sensitive and doing the right things mentally, emotionally. I think that's a piece we've got to fix not only for ourselves as current security leaders, but to make sure we have security leaders in the future because they're savvy. I'll say that about the, the, the younger generations are coming out. They look at it and say they see a lot of things. I don't want that or I want that, but I want this too. I think that's a key piece to, to bring in and be candid. You can do a lot of great things working with critical infrastructure. It is super rewarding. There's a little bit you have to be willing to be to do things that people don't ever consider, don't realize. But sometimes you get to go into a conversation and be the most interesting person in the room because people are actually like, oh my gosh, so this is how I get electricity at the light switch um, and be able to have that conversation. That's that's kind of a fun piece as well. Well, thank you so much, Nick, for joining us today. And I really hope that through your work with Archer International, through your podcast, Direct Connects, you can continue to inspire and mentor the next generations for years to come because you're you're selling it to me. I can see your passion. <laughs> and it's only half eight where you are. Who's that passionate at this hour? Coffee. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. Thanks for having me. It's a great conversation. Thanks for joining us. Perfect. Take care. big thanks once again to Nick Weber for chatting to us today and for sharing his invaluable insights with us. Uh, his discussion on the complexities of securing critical infrastructures and the learnings from past attacks were so fascinating, as well as the strategies for future preparedness. They were so compelling to hear firsthand. And I just want to remind people that Nick's podcast is called Direct Connect and you can get it wherever you listen to your podcasts. He shares his wisdom and he delves deeper into the vital issues surrounding national safety. And as I finish up today, I just want to wish Nick continued success with Archer International and his efforts to safeguard our critical infrastructures. A big thanks to you, our audience as well. Do join us next time. Uh, And in the meantime, stay safe.